We've been in a series throughout Lent. We started one Sunday late, really on the second Sunday of Lent. But we've been in a series called Conversations, and it's about conversations with Jesus, or conversations that Jesus had with others. And uh, Lent, for, probably for a lot of us, is kind of a new thing to sort of observe Lent. Maybe that's an unfamiliar thing, and this maybe is the first time you're doing something like that. Uh, Lent is a time when we journey with Jesus to the cross, and so very often we fast and we choose to give up something as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm joining uh, in with you. I'm lowering myself so that I can see you more clearly. You know, the funny thing is, I don't know if you've found this to be true, but sometimes um, in Lent, you, 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 there's this thing that you've chosen to give up, but really the thing that calls you to lay down your life is the thing that you didn't choose to give up. So I'll give you an example of that in our house. So we had these plans of, I had these plans of what I was going to give up. And, uh, and what, what has turned out happening is uh, I've given up a lot more. I've, we've given up sleep because we've had sick children. And, um, and so as, you're go, as we're going in, taking turns and going in the middle of the night to be with our baby and rock her through another ear infection, I'm thinking, I didn't, this isn't what I'm giving up for Lent, Lord, you know. But that's, just, that's, that's sort of how this works is the reason we voluntarily lay down certain things is to remind us that all of life is out of our control. And that in these situations where we find ourselves facing sufferings or difficulties that are beyond what we expected, we can say, Jesus, how can I journey with you through the suffering toward the cross? And, and probably you'll be in these situations in different seasons of the year and things like that. Well, here we are, and so far we, we've, we've journeyed with Jesus on the way to the cross through this series, and we've encountered different kinds of people. First, uh, we, we, we ran into... Um, Levi, who was the sinner, he was sort of the person that we would say he's, he's um, the, 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 re, the rejected sinner. And then there was the Samaritan woman, who was maybe the rejected, the outcast. And then there was uh, the man laying by the pool, who was helpless, because he couldn't move. And then last week, it was the, the man who was troubled with all these spirits and evil, and we'd say he's hopeless. I mean, he's sort of a hopeless case. He's living in tombs, for goodness sake. And all through the Gospels, we find that Jesus on the way to the cross is finding people who are on the outside, who are on the fringe, on the margins, and he's going to them. He's not staying with the powerful or the successful. He's going to the ones on the outside and saying, look, as I move toward the cross, I want you to know I'm going there for you and for you and for you and for you. And this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus and the criminal on the cross. If you think about it, there is no person who is more on the outside and out of time than than a criminal on a cross. Here's a person who's being crucified outside the city so that everybody else can ignore it, can forget about it. He's a person who's been written off, who's been condemned. And not only is he out of reach because he's outside the city to die, go away and die, but he's also out of time. These, when we meet him, he's in the final moments of his life. If there was ever a person that surely is out of the reach of Jesus... It's this man. Today is Palm Sunday, and obviously in Palm Sunday we think about the great cries of Hosanna, God come and save us, or our God has come to save us. And so much could be said this week and will be said this week about how Jesus came to save, but not in the way that they expected. How does God save? Not with power, not with might, 
but with the laying down of his life. But maybe a question that's closer to our hearts is not so much how does Jesus save, but whom does Jesus save? Who gets in on the salvation that God brings? Is it the obedient? Is it the faithful? Is it the ones who've kept it all? Is it the ones who've done it correctly? Or could a person like the criminal on the cross, who's out of reach and out of time, be saved as well? Turn with me to Luke 23. We'll read from verse 32. They also led two other criminals to be executed with Jesus. And when they arrived at the place of the skull, the, the place of the skull is a good translation because Aramaic, this derivative language of Hebrew, calls it Golgotha. But <laughs> the Latin for it, Calvary, it all means the same thing. The Greek for it is Cranian, Cranian skull. It all means the same thing. This is a place marked, named for death, skull, the end. And they crucified him along with the criminals on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They drew lots as a way of dividing up his clothing and the people were standing around watching. But the leaders sneered at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If you're underlining or highlighting on your device, would you underline the phrase save yourself? If he's really the Christ sent from God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came up to him offering him sour wine and said, If you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There it is again. Above his head was a notice of the formal charge against him. And it read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus insulted him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. There's that phrase again. Save yourself. Save yourself. This is the message of the world around us. It says, look, nobody else is going to look out for you. Nobody else is going to take care of you. So if something's going to be done, it's got to be done by you. Save yourself. Use every power. Use every resource. Leverage every advantage to your own benefit. Save yourself. But when you live this way, it makes the world turn inward. When you live this way, the way that says, I'm here to save myself, to take care of myself, to get what I can, even if it means exploiting others or leveraging this or manipulating that, controlling this, save yourself. That kind of orientation is an inward one. It makes all the world get smaller and smaller and smaller. And when you live that way, a funny thing happens. You begin to invent offenses. Have you ever been in a situation, a season like that, where all of a sudden you realize, man, this person really offended me. And then you go to the next part of your day and you go, that person really offended me. And then you you go on and next week you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. And do you know what my church did? And And it goes on and on. And all of a sudden someone says, hey, do you think it's you? No, it's not me. It's all these people that are wronging me. See, when you go through life saying, I am here to save myself, you'll quickly spot all the people who aren't taking care of you, and you'll be offended. The world says, save yourself, but the cross stands as a call to us to spend yourself. The cross says, look, you could. You could use all of your time and your resources and your life and every breath could be for yourself. Or think of Jesus. 
hanging on the cross with his dying breaths, each one a painful heave, saying in, in, with these last breaths, Father, forgive them. The cross says, we're not here to save ourselves. We're here to spend ourselves. And that kind of orientation is an outward and a Godward orientation. It's the way that turns our hearts out and turns our eyes up and says, look, look, this situation that I'm in, this is where I can spend myself, not save myself. So we go on in the text Verse 40, responding to the other criminal, responding, the other criminal spoke harshly to him. Don't you fear God, seeing that you've been sentenced to die? You've been given this judgment. We are rightly condemned, for we are receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you that today, you will be with me in paradise. Remember me. In our age, there is a great reluctance to use words like sin because they're uncomfortable words. Sin implies that there is some sort of way to live and that you've violated it. There are better, softer words like mistake, goofed, I messed up. Whoops. I did it again. <laughs> little pop culture reference for you. Or better yet, don't even call it a mistake. Just call it a different point of view. Well, that died. Sin. That's such a harsh word. It's not sin. It's just, hey, hey man, it's just another way to go through life. You got your way. I got my way. It's an alternate value system Don't judge me, man. We don't like the word sin because it reminds us of guilt. And I think what's interesting is no matter how we've tried to work with language or control language, the one thing we can't shake is guilt. And someone says, well, maybe that's just social conditioning. It's just programming. You've been programmed to believe in morality and right and wrong. And this is the reason why you think there's, there's guilt is because you've been programmed to, to, to think this. And yet, why has every culture got some sort of a concept of guilt? Who taught them that? Why is it that there is this urge in us to clean ourselves, to make up for our wrongs, to mend our ways. It doesn't make sense unless you say, well, there is this old story. There is this old story about the first man and woman in a garden and, and God made them to reflect His image, but they chose instead to be gods unto themselves who kind of do things their way. And The way the storytellers tell us this story is that After Adam and Eve sin, God makes them exit Eden. And they're never allowed back into it again. There's so much that has been said and written about the sense of paradise lost, to use Milton's phrase. The sense of wandering around, lost in the cosmos, displaced, dislocated, alienated, 
The sense of dislocation in our soul of where do I belong? Why won't this work? Why doesn't this fit? In a way, it's the feeling of being dismembered. Like the very parts of our life are dismembered, have been pulled apart. And deep within us, I think, deep within our souls, we cry, like this thief, like this criminal, we cry, remember me. What if this word, remember, if we can look at it artfully and say, it's not just remembrance, but could there be something in it of being remembered? That the soul that's been fractured, the life that's been broken, this world that we see all around us and we read headlines and we look at different stories and we think, oh my gosh, everything's coming apart. We say those phrases, it's all coming apart. And what we need is someone to remember us, to put it all back together again. And Jesus says, all right, I've got something to say to that. That's why I've come. But how does God save us? How does God do this? By being with us. By being with us even in the moment of death. Golgotha, the skull, the place where all the people who've been written off and rejected, condemned, left to die, forgotten, abandoned, sentenced to suffer. One has to wonder, is God in such a place? Is God in such a place, the place where a society trying to forget its criminals hangs them, crucifies them outside the city limits? Golgotha is outside Jerusalem so that normal people don't have to see this. So that you can go about your day and go to the market and buy your food and buy your clothes and all the stuff you're doing, all the commerce of your life. You can do it, but somewhere outside the city is this place. This place of the skull marked by death where there are men and women who've been forgotten who've been written off, whom the world has said, it's too late. It's too much. They've done too much. And it's now too late. Outside the city, in this lonely hill, is God in such a place? Is God in such a place? The miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus comes not to join us in golden temples, and royal thrones, and rich tables, and lavish feasts. The glory of the incarnation is Jesus comes to join us in the place of the skull. Jesus comes to be with us. What this means is that there's never a place, never a moment, never a time, never a pain, never an ache, That you can say, God, you don't know what this feels like. And he can say, I was at Golgotha. I was there. Think about what it means, this word with. Think about what it means to say that Jesus is with us in the moment of our 
lowest place, the worst place, the worst time. What does it mean to say Jesus is with you? It means there's never a moment where you can say, God, hey God, hey God, where are you, God? Do you know? And Jesus says, I was there. (laughs) I was there. There's an old play written after the Holocaust where the actor comes off the stage and begins walking in the aisles and the question over and over again was, who knew? Who knew about this? And so the, the actor walks the aisles and he says, did you know? Says, no, I didn't know. I'm just here to watch the show. You know? Did you know? Did you know? Did you know? And they go, and, and finally they decide, you know who knew? God knew. God knew. And then they decide, well, if God knew and God did nothing, then God is guilty. And so then all of a sudden they say, well, let's put God on trial And God is on trial and God is found to be guilty. And the people say, this is the verdict for the guilty God who knew about our suffering and allowed it anyway. They said, this is the verdict. God must have a son. God must have the son taken from him. God must watch the son be beaten and bloodied and bruised. God must have this son die the most painful, agonizing, terrifying, terrorizing death possible. God must know. And this play was written by a Lutheran pastor. And so, of course, the story turns when all of a sudden we say, God does know. Because Jesus was with us at Golgotha. I think sometimes we, we talk about the cross and we talk so much about Jesus dying for us and for our sins. And there's no doubt that is the centerpiece of it. But there is this other dimension to seeing the cross that's not just a for us, but a with us. With us. So that when you find yourself on a lonely hill outside the city, when people have written you off to go and die, you can say, even in that moment, Jesus is with me. And here's the power of it. Because Jesus joins us in our death, we can join Him in His life. Because Jesus has joined us in our death, we can join Him in His life. And so Jesus says to this criminal, today you will be with Me. Not only is, God with, our, not only is Jesus with us in Golgotha, but He says now because of that, you can be with Me in paradise. The beauty of the story is that Golgotha is not the ending. The place of the skull is not the last word of this story. There is this other word, and the word is paradise. Now, paradise may be a cheap word for us. It may be the word that you use to fill all of your childhood longings for free candy and you know bubbles and whatever. Woo! Paradise! But paradise is a very particular word. For Jewish storytellers, because it makes them think about Eden. It makes them think about the world that God made. The world the way God designed it to be. Creation restored. The world renewed. 
The hope for all of us who are with Jesus is not just that, hey, I'm with you in Golgotha. That's comforting and that's powerful and that's profound. But it's not enough, is it? If, so, if we just stopped there and say, Jesus is with you. Say, well, thanks, but is this ever going to change? Is this the end? Is this the way it ends? No, Jesus says to the criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. No longer alone or displaced, no longer cast out, no longer wandering outside of Eden, but found with Jesus in paradise. In being with Him, we are put back together. In being with Him, there's no longer the sense of being displaced, dislocated, dismembered, but now all of a sudden, remembered. Re-back together. The question is, for us this morning, is where are you? This, in fact, is the very first question God asks in the Bible. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve are hiding, paradise is being lost, and God comes walking after Adam. See, I think there's some reworking we, we church people have to do. There's a part of us that, grew, some of you grew up in church, you have this vision that Adam and Eve sinned and God said, Ew! Can't look! Get away! But instead, what, Gen- what Genesis says is Adam and Eve sinned and they're the ones hiding. God's not the one hiding. Church, God's not the one hiding. God's the one calling. We're the ones hiding. We're the ones hiding, saying, I can't, it's too much, it's too late, I've done it, I've done it now, I've lost it, paradise is lost, it's over, this is, judgment is my lot in life. And God says, where are you, why are you hiding? We are the ones who hide, God is the one who calls. And just as he called Adam and Eve in the garden and said, where are you, he's calling to you today. Where are you? Maybe you are in the place of the skull. On that hill outside of town. Spectacle. Maybe you have family members who've written you off. Family members who said, he's never going to change. Maybe you've had friends who said, it's just the way she is. That's who she is. What sentence are you living under? What verdict have you heard? It's too late. It's too much. The truth is, at one time or another, we were all under the sentence of death. At one time, the word of judgment was the word we heard. Paul says in our New Testament reading, that that word of judgment is not the last word. That if you are in Christ, there is now. That reminds me of Jesus' today. Jesus says to the thief, today. Paul says, there is now. See, something's changed. The word of judgment was the word over your life. The sentence of death was the sentence over my life. 
But now there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, our sin was fatal. But because of Jesus, it will not be final. Our sin was fatal. But because of Jesus, it will not be final. Can I say to you this morning, whatever the thing is in your life that you are sure you will never shake, can I say to you this morning that it's not the last word on you? It's not the last word on you. Some of you have heard things or had things said. It's hard to shake it. It plays like a tape in your heart. You're no good. You're lazy. You'll never amount. It'll never change. You're always. You never. Could the Holy Spirit help you this morning to hear a different voice? The voice of Jesus saying, Today, I assure you. Assure you. Think of that word. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. What's it like to be assured in your heart? That doesn't mean you don't doubt. It doesn't mean you don't question. And it certainly doesn't mean you always feel it. Assurance is far deeper than emotion. Assurance is far more reliable than situations. Because I'll tell you, there will be situations where it just doesn't feel right. Mother Teresa spent the bulk of her years in Calcutta not feeling the warmth of Jesus like she did as a young girl. So she goes her whole life feeling the Lord's presence and His nearness to her. And then she obeys His call and goes to Calcutta. And all of a sudden, there in the slums, she can't sense His warmth anymore. All of this came out a few years back and as her diaries were discovered. One of her biographers wrote about it in a book called Come Be My Light. And there was this great uproar because people who loved Mother Teresa said, look, this is dangerous because this is going to hurt her hopes of being canonized as a saint. And someone else said, no, this is going to help it. Because what's it like to keep following Jesus when you don't feel the warmth of His presence? What's it like to hang on to an assurance that's somehow deeper, that says, I'm going to say the words of Christ over my life every morning. Today, He assures me that I am with Him. Today, He assures me that I am with Him. What if you woke up every morning and said that, God, in spite of this, in spite of the Golgotha moment, look, it's not like He got off the cross. It's not like Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wha-bam! And they both all just jumped off the cross and said, see you later. They both died. Jesus rose. And one day this criminal will experience resurrection too. But Jesus' today means that something has already changed. Something has already happened. He's already being remembered. I assure you today. In the Old Testament reading, the psalmist said, because God stands next to the needy to save him from any who condemns him. I wonder if the psalmist saw ahead, 
to Jesus, not quite standing next to the criminal, but next to him nonetheless. I wonder if the psalmist could have imagined when he said, God stands next to the needy to rescue him from those who condemn him. If he had any idea that the way God stands next to you to deliver you from the voice of condemnation is by standing next to you on the cross and saying, I'm here. I'm with you in your death so you can be with me in my life. This is the power of the cross. Church, as we come this morning to the table, Jesus told his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. I think there's something beautiful about as we remember, he remembers us puts us back together. As we remember Him, Christ by His Spirit begins to remember us. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? What Jesus promises us is not your best life now. He doesn't promise you the end of crosses. In fact, He invites you to carry one. But what Jesus promises you is that because He's joined you in your suffering, your suffering is no longer meaningless and your suffering is no longer the end. It also means that Something of His restoring, renewing work happens in your life even today. Would you stop for a moment and think about the verdict, the the lies, the sentences that you've been living under? Would you just confess this morning and say, God, I, I think deep down I do believe this verdict over my life or this sentence over my life. I'm living my whole life like a guilty person trying to get on the inside. Like someone who's outside the city trying to get in the city. Would you confess that?